in our text this morning is Galatians 6, 11 through 18. As we come to the end of the book of Galatians, verses 11 through 18 of chapter 6. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you, or be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. All right, let's pray. Uh, Father, we come one last time in the book of Galatians here and ask that you might bless us with your word, that uh, you would use it to work in our hearts, to love Christ more, to love others more, to walk by the Spirit more, Father, I pray that you would get fruit from your word in our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's hard to believe we're already through the book of Galatians. It's going to be the last sermon uh, on this book. I hope that... uh, You've been as blessed from this as I have been. I'm amazed that whenever we dive into a book and and try to sift out everything we can, how practical uh, to our lives it can be. I just want to, before we jump into the sermon, I just want to remind you, as as I got high points in my mind, I just want to remind you of some of the stuff we went through, just in two minutes. Right at the beginning, verse 4 of chapter 1, we're told that Jesus Christ came to deliver us from the present evil age. So Christ shows up on the scene to bring about a new creation, a new era in history, so that when that day arrives, we would never think of going back to the old era, but that we would walk with Christ in the new era. And we saw how Jesus' death on the cross inaugurated this new time. And uh, through His death, when we trust in Him by faith, not by works, We're given the Spirit of God so that the life we used to never be able to live, 
we can now begin to sow seeds into the field of the Spirit. Uh, I, I don't know about you, but I gained assurance in this book personally. As Paul went through the conflict that goes on within Sam Ellison and every Christian, there's flesh remaining and there's the Spirit of God over here, and I can walk with the flesh. I can plant, sow seeds with the flesh or the Spirit. And seeing that that conflict in me is evidence that I am a believer. The fact that there's a battle inside of me to want to crucify the flesh so that the old man finally dies, recognizing I'm in process. No one's arrived until Christ returns or we die. I don't know about you, but that is sweet salve to my soul. That, I mean, you can just know it. Your pastor had struggled with assurance. How could I truly be saved and continue to struggle? And I preach grace to you and then I give law to myself. But through this sweet book and through God's Word, by God's grace, assurance has come to me in a special way. I hope it's the same for you. We learned that this Gospel was not Paul's Gospel but it was delivered to him from God. He never got it from man. He never got it from the other apostles. This gospel is Paul's gospel. We learn that if you want to add anything to salvation in Christ through grace by faith, if you want to add anything to that, you get nothing. If you want to add circumcision or any religious rite as the means of attaining salvation, you're severed from Christ. We're either saved by Christ alone or Christ plus anything else equals nothing. We got to see how Living by the flesh produces corruption and death, but walking by the Spirit produces new life. And why are we given the Spirit? To love God and to love neighbor, to bear each other's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. These are just some of the highlights that we went through that I hope as we're going through these, you remember them and they're sweet. As we came to these last few verses here. I thought I was going to preach these, then do an overview. But in these last verses, I think it is an overview. And next week, we're going to embark on a new book. We're going to go through the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, which means we're probably going to be in Luke for quite a while. But uh, we started in Mark at Sovereign Grace Church six, seven years ago. We haven't been in a gospel since, so we're going to come back. We're going to do Luke. And uh, there's a good chance for the next couple years that's where we'll be. 
We might take a few breaks in there uh, for a couple weeks, but we're going to go through the uh, Gospel of Luke. So, today's message, Christianity, divine fruitfulness. If someone asks me, how would you describe Christianity? One of my responses is going to be divine fruitfulness. So why why would I say something like that? Well, let's just go the opposite. Human corruption. Human corruption. The opposite of divine fruitfulness is human corruption. If someone were to ask you, what is Christianity? What's the essence of Christianity? Is it mainly a divine religion? that produces fruits inside a person's heart? Or is it works of human effort that create outward symbols or that live according to outward symbols? What would you say? Is Christianity merely human and outward or is it divine and spiritual? This is the opposite nature between Paul and the Judaizers, these false teachers and this young church uh, in in Galatia, this is the contrast that we're going to see in this text. We're going to see that Paul is diametrically believing in a different type of Christianity than those of Judaism. Many of you might be familiar with Romans chapter 1. I just want to read a few verses out of it. And I want you to see what's going to be a temptation for you because it's been a temptation for man ever since Adam and Eve. In Romans uh, chapter 1, verse 18, here's what we're told. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. How is what we can know about God plain to every man? Because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. What we see here is that creation was meant to be a clear representation of God's glory. Everything God created, whether it's on earth or up in the heavens, as you're looking at the solar system and the skies, it's all screaming out truth about God, but man has taken that truth, has suppressed it down. Rather than honoring God and giving thanks to Him, we've done the most stupid thing in the world. We've taken the signs and symbols that point us to God and begin to worship 
the signs and symbols. Think of Adam and Eve. A snake comes. An animal meant to show Adam and Eve the glory of God, His creation. And instead, the creature takes the place of God and is worshipped by them listening to the creature rather than God. If we're to read on in Romans 1, he just says it over and over again. Here's what he says. He says, claiming to be wise, they became fools, stupid, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, creeping things. Verse 24, therefore God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Your temptation, listen to me, is going to be to begin to worship the signs and symbols of Christianity rather than Christ. The only reason to think that this won't be a problem for you is a problem all the way from Adam and Eve, all the way up to the present day. It's been a problem for the church ever since Christianity has come, believing that human effort, according to human our religious symbols that are pointing to God has always been the temptation of man. And this is what the Judaizers embody. These false teachers are coming in and Paul's exposing them, showing that they're totally earthly-minded and that they're only about the outward things and not the inward things. So let's look at Galatians chapter 6, verse 11. Paul does something he does at, uh, in several of his letters. Uh, he has someone uh, writing down for him uh, as he's speaking the letter, but at the end of the letter, he grabs the pen out of the scribe and he writes with his own hand. And here's what, it, here's, here's what we see in verse 11. See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. At the end of 2 Thessalonians in 3.17, he says this, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It's the way I write. So Paul takes up the pen. People want to make a big deal about large letters, say he's got an eye problem. How would we ever know any of that? What we know is that this is Paul's way of saying, this is an authentic letter from me. But he does something unusual. He doesn't just do a greeting or a grace be with you. He actually recaps what he wanted to get across in the book. He writes a little more with his own hand. And so uh, let's look at verse 12. Now the drive of the sermon is this. Boast in Christ alone and live in His peace, mercy, suffering, and grace. 
And the first point we see in these first two verses, avoid boasting in your flesh. Here we have the Judaizers on display. Here's what he says. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh to get that, make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross. Isn't it interesting? So these Judaizers were, came into town. They began forcing the Christian church to be circumcised. They wanted to make a show for themselves. They wanted to put themselves on display by being good teachers coming in, forcing circumcision. How loving does this sound? You want to be a part of this religion? Come in. Here's what you have to do. You're not going to be saved unless you do this. You have to do it. And by the way, the reason why I'm making you do it and I'm not going with the true gospel is I want to avoid persecution. That's what we read in verse 12. What is at the heart of the Judaizers that causes them to force circumcision? According to this verse, it's right at the beginning there. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. These teachers' motives is all about self-glorification. It's all about them being honored rather than being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Now we know that the Judaizers' message, uh, uh, we, we see it most clearly in Acts 15. And in verse 1 and verse 5, I'll just read it to you. Here, here was their message. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So evangelists show up and they're preaching, yeah, I know you're trusting in Jesus, Christian church, but that's not enough. You got to add circumcision if you want to be saved. You got to keep the law. The way you're saved is by human effort according to these symbols, circumcision. And then in uh, verse 5 of Acts 15, we read this about them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees wrote up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So these are people showing up that are forcing law upon the Christian church. Now think about circumcision for a minute. It's a human work performed by humans. You might be saying, well, yeah, but God gave circumcision to Abraham. Yes, He did. But what is circumcision apart from God? It's nothing. Circumcision points to the reality of God's grace in God's people and ultimately is pointing towards the circumcision of the heart in inward change. So how does preaching circumcision keep these Judaizers from being persecuted? 
Well, it's simple. They get rid of the gospel. You see, if you're saved by, uh, they might have said you need to trust Christ, but you got to be circumcised. You got to follow this code of conduct. You know what that does? That builds up man. Because you don't want to know what man thinks? I can do it. I'm capable. I can handle this. And if I do it well, guess where the glory goes? It comes to me. You want to know what's unpopular in the world and has always been unpopular in the world? The gospel of Christ. The cross of Christ. Why? Because the gospel is this. That when Jesus came, He came for sinners, not for good people. Right away, man is offended. If Christ is for you, that means you're a sinner. How bad are you? Well, when Jesus takes your sins upon Himself, you want to know what it takes to pay for them? It takes for His Father to pour out His eternal wrath upon Him on the cross. You look at the cross and we shake our head and say, oh, it's so horrible. Look at what they did to Him. Look at, look at what's going on. You know what? The cross is screaming that we're not good enough. That we can't do it. The Gospel is the only man that was ever good enough was Jesus Christ. He's the only one who never sinned. He lived a perfect life, created a gift called righteousness that's offered to sinners, not to religious people. Anyone who thinks their good works are going to save them, according to Paul and according to this letter, are severed from Christ. Only those who recognize, I have no hope. In my sin, I decided to worship the creation rather than the Creator. My only hope is for a substitute, a Savior. Those are the ones who can be saved. That's offensive to the world. People who think they're pretty good. So, true Christians have always been persecuted by the unbelieving world, they don't want to hear they're no good, and by the religious folks who want to do the outward symbols and don't really want to trust Christ from the heart. You get attacked from both uh, sides when you carry the cross of Christ. The Judaizers did not want to carry that burden. They wanted the praise of man, so they come and teach a religion of man even though they use all the words of Christianity. John Stott says, What is there about the cross of Christ which angers the world and stirs them up to persecute those who preach it? Just this, Christ died on the cross for us sinners, becoming a curse for us. So the cross tells us some very unpalatable truths about ourselves. Namely, that we are sinners under the righteous curse of God's law and we cannot save ourselves. Christ bore our sin and curse precisely because we could not gain release uh, from them ourselves. And then look at verse 13. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, 
So as these false teachers come and they say, you got to keep the law, you got to be circumcised to be saved, Paul says, don't think they're asking you to do it because they did it. They didn't do it. And they even know they didn't do it. They're merely doing this to get the praise of man. That's why they're here, to avoid persecution, get the praise of man, because they themselves didn't even keep the law. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. How could Baptists do this? I think I see Baptists do this. I think I could do this. I think I have done this. Is there a way that I could preach the gospel and want people to be baptized? Because you want to know at the end of every year, being a Southern Baptist, we get an email that says, how many people did you baptize? How many people were baptized? Which they're going to say, well, that's, there's nothing wrong with that. We just want to know how many people got saved. We want to know, well, there's a way where we could push for the signs that point to Christ, make them the big deal so that we look successful as a church. These Judaizers came in. They want as many circumcised converts they can get. The more converts they get, the more they puff up themselves. And it's all about them. It's all about human work, not a divine work. And it's all outwardly, not inwardly of the heart. It's always been like this. 750 years before Christ, Israel was in this boat. Here's what Isaiah says to them. And the Lord said, because this people draws near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are from, far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men, therefore behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people with wonder upon wonder and the wisdom of the wise of their wise men shall perish and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. 750 years before Christ, Israel was saying all the right things, but their hearts were far from them. But God in His grace says, I'm going to do wonder upon wonder with this people. You won't believe it. The proud ones, I'm going to humble. I'm going to let them know who they really are. They're going to worship me. The Pharisees in Jesus' day, were, were they not the typical religious folk who walked around in their fancy robes and they followed all the rituals perfect. They're tithing twice a week. They're, are they twice as much? They're fasting twice a week. They're only called to fast once. I mean, they could fast more, but they're, you know, they set up a man-made system. Everyone looks at them. Oh, look at them. They're so religious. They look so good on the outside. And what does Jesus say? inside they're rotten it's all about the outward show and human effort but inside was rebellion against god in their hearts they actually thought that they deserved to be saved because they were that good you see they weren't looking for a savior they weren't looking for christ they were like the best Jews ever. They had more rules than 
wherever in Israel. You want to know the sad thing? Christ dies on the cross, purchases a church, and if you study church history, it's not very long. You know what Christians are doing? They're taking this hero over here who is as much of a Christian hero as a man can be who is just being used of God. He dies, and what do they do? They clamor for his bones. You know why? Because if you carry the bone of that saint around, you might have spiritual power. This is silly. Why not carry the faith of the saint around and have the same spiritual power? Why do we cling to the image or to the symbol rather than to the God whom it represents? So Christianity's always struggled with this. True Christianity is a divine work of God on a person's heart where they're changed on the inside. But most of the denominations we have right now in America have made religion out of the symbols and are in the exact same boat as the Galatian church was almost in when these false teachers came to be. It is so easy. Isn't it easy to get up and go to church? Say the right thing. Stand, sit at the right time. Maybe even open your Bible. You can do all that. And your heart doesn't necessarily change at all. What can change a person's heart? Human effort? Human effort can't change a person's heart. Only a divine miracle of a new birth, a new creation. And that's what Christianity has always been about. Look at verse 14. So don't boast in your flesh, but rather do what Paul did. Look at him in contrast. He says, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying, they're going around boasting in what they're doing. I am not going to boast in my flesh or what I did. Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. If there's one thing you need to know about the Apostle Paul is that the cross is central in his doctrine. Everything Paul preaches is the cross of Christ. The very thing that brings persecution, he preaches. Why? He goes around and preaches, I was a really good Pharisee, but I found out that I was on my way to hell. I thought I was good. I was doing all the rituals. I was even doing it better than all you. But when Christ revealed himself to me, he realized he was the greatest of all sinners and that he was saved by grace. So Paul goes around and he preaches, I'm the greatest of all sinners, but look at my Savior. Look at what Christ has done for me. He says, you want to see me boast? I'm not going to be boasting in my sermons. I'm not going to be boasting in my converts. I'm going to be boasting in the cross of Christ. Jesus Christ crucified. Far be it from me to boast 
except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which his world changed when he understood the gospel. Paul's world was flipped on its head. Here's what he says. The world has been crucified to me. The same people that used to say, Paul, you're the best Pharisee. There's no one better than you. You have the most zeal. That same world now looks at Paul and says, Paul, you're going to hell. You're not preaching the law. You're not telling people to get circumcised. You're as good as dead. The people that used to be in Paul's court now look at Paul and say, he's a heretic. Don't listen to him. And you want to know what Paul says? And I'm crucified to the world. I look at the world, the people I used to think who were God's people, I now recognize that behind all that religious workings, all those rituals, all the robes, all that, Paul now understands that they're sadly marching to their own salvation that's going to end up in destruction. Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Here's what he means practically in his own personal life. He's saying, in my everyday life, the things I used to value, I don't value anymore. I have a whole new set of values because there's a new kingdom that's inaugurated in Christ. Paul's not on his agenda anymore. Now he's on Christ the King's agenda. His world just got so much bigger than himself. Paul isn't living for Paul anymore. He's living to love other people and for the mission of God. His life has been totally flipped on its head. Um, in Galatians 2.19, he says, For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. So his life could be flipped on its head. Here's what Martin Luther said about this text. Now remember, he's the reformer who, as he was reading Romans, discovered that Martin Luther was a priest who had this inner battle. He could never understand how he could be good enough before God. And then he opened the book of Romans and saw that salvation, God's righteousness, comes to people not by actually becoming good enough, but it's a gift of God to them through faith. His life was changed then. But now that he believed this, he brought it to the church that he loved and had to confront it. But here's what he said. He says, this is Paul's manner of speaking. The world is crucified to me. That is, I judge the world to be damned and I am crucified to the world. That is, uh, the world had again judged me to be damned. Thus we crucify and condemn one another. I abhor all the doctrine, righteousness, and works of the world as the position of the devil. The world, again, detesteth my doctrine and deeds and judgeth me to be seditious, a 
pernicious and a pestilent fellow and inherit and a heretic. So at this day, the world is crucified to us and we into the world. We curse and condemn all man's traditions concerning mass, orders, vows, will-worshiping works, and all the abominations of the Pope and the other heretics as the dirt of the devil. They again do persecute and kill us as destroyers of religion and troublers of public peace. So he's saying, I've experienced this. Once I trusted Christ, I became a heretic to the Catholic Church. And the very Catholic Church where I was a priest, now I've realized they're promoting a man, a self-earning salvation according to the ordinances and rituals. And, in, and here's Paul's conclusion. In, in verse 15, he says, For him, now that he's a Christian, for neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. These signs and symbols, whether you have circumcision or don't have circumcision, for the Apostle Paul, he says, I count both of them as nothing. Not that they don't have a place, but in comparison to the new birth in Christ, they're nothing. They point towards the new life the believer has in Christ. For Paul, the essence of Christianity is not a matter of outward signs performed by humans, but it's the result of divine power and work that changes a person at a heart level. Man's religion, human effort, will produce corruption. True Christianity, people walking by the Spirit, will produce love and unity and peace. It's pretty tough in, in the American church. You look around, it's pretty tough to see through all that's going on. America needs more than ever preachers of the gospel of Christ willing to be persecuted to say, you're sinful. Your works won't get you to heaven, but let me tell you about Jesus. He became a man. He was good enough. And if you trust in Him by faith, He gives you the gift of righteousness. You don't become righteous in purgatory. You become righteous when you trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior because it's given to you as a gift and when God gives you that gift, when you trust in Christ by faith, He puts in His Spirit within you, and you actually begin to do the works of God. You see the difference in, in, the, in the two religions? One says you have to do the works of God to be saved. The other says you can't do the works of God because you can't change your own heart. You need to trust in Christ to be saved, and then He'll put your Spirit within you, and you'll actually be able to do the works of God from the heart and not for your own pride, religious uh, pride. So the essence of Christianity, according to Paul, 
is this new creation that's worked by God. Look at verse 16. And as for us who walk by this rule, this is for the church, the believers in Christ, and as for us all who walk by this rule, I think the rule encompasses the cross of Christ and the new birth, which comes through the gospel. That's what's in the context here. For all who walk by this rule, look at the fruits. Peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Three things we can notice here. The church of God has a rule to walk by. And that rule isn't like the law, as you would think of it, but the rule is that Jesus Christ came to die for sinners so that a sinner can actually receive the new birth and be changed at the heart and become a new creation. That's the rule. And when we live according to that rule, God's peace and mercy is upon His people. I mean, you'll just experience this. As you begin to live your life according to law, having to be good enough to be acceptable to God, you want to know what's going to be living upon you? Condemnation and wrath. That's what you're going to feel. You're not preaching the good news to yourself. The good news is this. I can't do it. I'm not good enough. Christ did it. He's given me the Spirit. And so I'm free to walk with the Spirit now. And as I screw up, as I sin, I have a Savior that says, I covered that and I've given you the Spirit to repent of that and now walk in my ways. That's living with peace and mercy. And it says, upon the Israel of God. Uh, we're going to look at verse 18 in a minute because it's this blessing He always gives to the church. I do want to talk about where it says, and upon the Israel of God. So there's a debate here. That word and can be translated even, or it can be translated and, so you have a debate. It could read, and as all as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, the Israel of God. Even the Israel of God, saying that the church is the Israel of God. I actually think that's what Paul's saying in Galatians. I do think the Bible recognizes ethnic Israel and how uh, the blinders that's on their eyes now will be lifted one day. But in Galatians, in chapter... Uh, uh, 3, verse 29, he says, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Meaning you're a part of the people of God if you're Abraham's offspring. Uh, in, in Philippians 3, 3, uh, he says this, for we are the circumcision. Paul's saying, we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. He says the true Jews are the ones who are Jews inwardly, meaning the circumcision has happened to their heart. So I think 
That's what he's getting at uh, here. He could be recognizing that, and there's a blessing on the Israel of God, which I think there is, but I just don't think that's what's being taught here. So look at verse 17 as we uh, bring this to conclusion. For now, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Here's what he's saying. The Judaizers come in and they say, don't listen to Paul. He's teaching a false gospel. And Paul says, look it. They're saying that because they want to avoid persecution. You could look at his back. You could look at his body. And Paul could say, I bear the marks of Christ. He's already been stoned. He's been beaten so many times. He's been shipwrecked. He bears the marks of preaching the true gospel of Christ, just like so many Christians throughout the ages. So he says, come on, church, recognize who the true teachers are. Recognize who the Christ teachers are. And then he leaves them with how he leaves Almost every letter, he says this, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you in your spirit, brothers. Amen. At the beginning of Paul's letters, he says, grace and peace be with uh, uh, to you. At the end of his letters, he says, grace and peace be with you. At the beginning, he's saying, grace is coming to you. As he's leaving the letter, he says, grace be with you. Listen, church. You need to know this. If you follow Christ and stand for the gospel, you will take your lumps for doing that. You will suffer just as Paul suffered. But it's kind of like a suffering sandwich if you look at these last uh, few verses. Because look at verse 16. All who walk by this rule, peace and mercy. The bread on top of the sandwich, peace and mercy upon you. Suffering is in verse 17. Paul's saying, I bear the marks of Christ. And then the bottom bread, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. As we were singing the hymn uh, earlier, here was the line that stuck out to me. When darkness hides His lovely face, when suffering comes in your life, I rest on His unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. This is what Paul's saying. He's saying, if you trust in Christ and believe in the gospel, peace and mercy will follow you wherever you go. And by the way, grace is always going to be with you. It's never going to leave you. This is the best news any sinner could ever hope for. You and I can go to our death. We could be on our deathbed knowing, knowing that the moment we die, we're in the presence of God, not because we were good enough, but because Jesus was good enough and we trusted in Him. My prayer is that you're not fooled. That you don't think God's going to look at your life and say, they came to church, they were a pretty nice person, they did this and that. 
My prayer is that you realize Christianity is all about God saving a person. It's a divine work of God that brings a person to repentance. Rather than glorifying themselves, they want to glorify God and show themselves sinners. It's my prayer that no one would go before God ready to put forth their works. Matthew 7 tells us that doesn't work out good. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, that we do not do many mighty works in Your name. And what does He say? I tell you the truth, I never knew You. It's about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, recognizing your sins, clinging to Him by faith. I pray that you're willing to suffer to tell that good news to a world that has either just rejected God just flat out or is in a church that's just going through the rituals. My prayer is you'll love them enough to show them what the Bible teaches is really good news. Let's pray. Father, I pray that even right now You might be working in the hearts of those who are here today. God, I pray that they would see that what Your Word says, all of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. That true peace and mercy comes in receiving the gift of peace and mercy through Your grace in Christ. That when we can trust in Your grace rather than our works, Lord, that we can finally be at rest. Lord, I pray that You would work in us. That the Spirit of God would change us. That we would love each other. And that we would love God with all of our heart, soul, and mind. In Jesus' name, amen.